Welcome to Roundhill Radio, the podcast from Roundhill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we're talking about when we talk about faith. Welcome to Roundhill Radio. I'm Leslie. I'm Ed. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Leslie. What are we learning about today? We are learning about this fantastic song called the Magnificat. Mm. Yes. So this is the song of Mary. So this is our our last in this series of four Bible studies, preparing us for the season of Advent. Not our last Bible study, however. We've got something else planned for the month of December that will be an interfaith experience. But for today, we're, we're concluding this particular study with this wonderful passage from the Gospel of Luke. So we've had a little bit of a walk around the New Testament since we started. We saw a letter of James. Then we went back into the Hebrew Bible with the, with, uh, the prophet Isaiah. Then we went back into the New Testament with a letter to the Philippians. And now today we're in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke has so many of the really wonderful Christmas stories. So this seemed like a good place to land before we, uh, you know, as a jumping point before we go into the season of Advent. So actually, I thought I would get started um, by reading this particular passage. So we'll launch right into the story and get ourselves underway. And Leslie, I'm going to ask you especially to take notes. Any questions you have, you're ready to go. Right. Pen at the ready. So um, Mary is obviously such a key character in this whole story. And uh, in, according to Luke, there's nothing that happens without her. So she receives this astonishing news that she's going to be the mother of a child. And this child has a spiritual origin. And it's this, this child is destined to be great for all of the nations as a savior, as a saving presence. So what is her response to that? Well, she says, yes. She says, let it be to me according to your word. That's what she says to the angel Gabriel after he has delivered this floor shattering news, (laughs) really rocked her foundations. So what does she do? She decides to go and spend some time with a relative. And I think this is a really human, beautiful part of this story. So she goes to spend time uh, where she will be with a a kinswoman named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, it turns out, is also pregnant. And so these two pregnant women are going to be with each other. So here's what the story goes. Here's how the story unfolds. In those days, meaning in those days right after She has heard this news from the angel Gabriel. Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah is a priest. And uh, at this point in the story, he's a priest who is unable to speak because he was given the news that he and his wife were going to be the parents of a child. He couldn't wrap his mind around that. So the angel said, well, you just take some time to think about that. And in the meantime, you're not going to be able to speak. So she goes to this really unusual household where Zechariah can't talk and Elizabeth's pregnant. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. That child, by the way, will grow up to be John the Baptist. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. So that's Elizabeth's comment when her kinswoman Mary arrives. And Mary said, and I think this is astonishing because she's literally just inside the house and has put her bags down at the front door. And she gives quite a little speech when she gets into the house. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Quite a little speech. First day with the relatives. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much there, isn't there? It's astonishing. It's astonishing. I was thinking about, I was thinking about many, many things uh, that came to mind, but it, it, the last thing of the mag, as musicians call it, uh, is uh, this idea of the lifting up the lowly and and all these promises fulfilled that we were talking about last week, mm-hmm. right? Of, mm-hmm. of of making all things good. Yeah. Um, that really connects with I think what we were talking about last week. I I have to say I was thinking about this sort of that the reading between the lines of this experience, like trying to put, you know, yourself in, in Mary's shoes. And, you know, she went with haste implies one thing of like this, I need to do this. I need to go and be with my, my relative and spend time with her, especially as she was also pregnant. And then also this idea that, you know, days later, so we're seeing Mary, how she's had a little time, Uh you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, how much freaking out was happening between point A and point B that she got from speaking to Gabriel? It was Gabriel, right? It's and, Gabriel. And speaking to Elizabeth and what right. what journey she went on here. Yeah. Is very is an interesting about. idea to me. You get the sense that she's had a little time to compose this speech. You know, it's it's been building in her. Yeah. Um, you know, scholars like to get down into the nitty gritty of the details and they'll say, so how far was it from Nazareth to these so-called Judean hills, you know? Yeah. And, and one scholar said, well, basically what you're looking at is about an 80 mile journey. So if you think about a person walking over rough terrain for 80 miles, unsafe territory, it's unguarded, it's not protected. Mm -hmm. And then she arrives on this doorstep. She's had a lot of thinking time. And she's had time out under the stars, 
You know, she's who knows how she's eaten during this time. So this is the kind of thing that the Jewish tradition loves to delve into and sort of speculate about. And that's how they create all these great, great texts on top of the Hebrew Bible. But uh, I think your question's a great one because she has had some time to do a little composing in her mind. And she kind of delivers the whole thing. You know, I never really thought about this before. (laughs) You know, they haven't even taken her bags up to the room, right? (laughs) And here she is. Hello. Um, It it makes me... Oh, sorry. Oh, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it makes me think of... I don't know why, but it makes me think of Neil Armstrong. And I can you just picture him... They land on the moon. He's mm-hmm. going down the steps going, one cell slip for man, one dying late for mankind. One cell right. for man. One day, like, he's <laughs> rehearsing and practicing. Like, what do you say sure. in these monumental moments of human history? Yes. You know? Yes. Um, and I think it's very telling that her, her speech has turned into this great piece of music that right. in the Anglican choral tradition, ironically, I brought my Anglican choral mug today. Oh, perfect. That you perfect gave prop. me. Thank you very much. Um, that that is sung uh, every even song. It is right. the the central choral piece. So it's not a thing that's saved for Christmas time. It's not a thing that's saved for Advent. It is anytime you sing even song, you sing her Magnificat, you know. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So it's a text that's meant to shape the church, really. It's really intended to be constantly in front of us, shaping our priorities. Yeah. Um, So. It also made me think, too, what Elizabeth says to her before, because isn't that some of the text from the rosary Mm. that became the rosary when you pray the rosary in in the Catholic tradition? Yeah. Yeah, she... She, in her own way, is a bit of a poet, and she's a little astonished, you know, in a sense that it's interesting because she makes reference to this child that Mary carries in her womb as my Lord. Mm. So she's already acknowledging that this person forming just in its early, early stages is already uh, recognized by her as a person who's going to grow into an individual with global significance. And I think that's, I'll say a little bit more about that later, but but that to me is one of the most astonishing things in this most astonishing text. Mary sees herself in the big picture. Mm-hmm. She is not um, a young woman confined in her imagination to one tiny part of the world. She sees that something has happened that's going to have significance for people everywhere, which and one level is absolutely outlandish. You know, I mean, she's living in a Roman occupied country. Right. And technically speaking, she doesn't have any power either within her own Jewish culture or certainly from the perspective of the Roman Empire. She is a true nobody. Mm-hmm. And yet, this is not how she sees herself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was something that stood out for me, Leslie, when I was reading the story in preparation for, de- for today. I've read it who knows how many hundred times. But this really stood out for me. And and actually, you drew attention to it. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste. So, you know, if we ask ourselves the question, why are those words included there? Why would would the writer of this gospel add that? Well, one thing that, um, you know, occurred to me is that both Elizabeth and Mary face a similar challenge. They, They face the possibility of isolation. In fact, uh, not from Luke's gospel, but from Matthew's gospel, 
You know, we learn that Joseph, when Joseph finds out that she's pregnant, and then she says, well, you know, not only am I pregnant, but the father's the Holy Spirit. Now he's, <laughs> his head is really spinning now. Like Zechariah. I mean, he, he wants to distance himself from her, mm. which means that he probably has a community he's aligned with. She may not. And so the, the great danger for her is to get isolated in her own beliefs and in her journey. Right. So in, in a similar kind of way, Elizabeth is living at this point with her husband, Zechariah. He can't speak. So she's beginning to, her, her body's beginning to change also, but she's out there in the hill country. And we don't know what kind of a community that she has or doesn't have around her. So, But it, it's as if these two women, Mary instinctively knows that she's got to get to somebody. Mm -hmm. She has to figure this out with somebody. And in each of these women is going to get to spend some time kind of asking each other, what in the world is this? What's going on with you? And what's going on with you? And how are we going to navigate this incredible strangeness that's happened? Um, I had a friend, really wonderful teacher at, at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And Union has always had a very long relationship with Columbia University. and. Uh, so occasionally, this friend of mine who was a professor, Jim Washington, he would say, occasionally, you know, the Columbia people will invite us over to, to weigh in on something. He said, when there's a strangeness that they can't explain, <laughs> you know, so if somebody's teaching religion at Columbia and they just couldn't figure something out, they would reach out to the union people and uh, say, here, you come in and make sense of this for us. I think both Elizabeth and Mary are experiencing this great mystery in their lives. And in a way, they're the only two who can identify with, with each other. There's nobody else who can really understand this. So it's, it's interesting that I think that Mary understands she's got to get to Elizabeth quickly. Does that yeah, make sense? Absolutely. And not, not only for her own safety and social, you know, the social contract structs of that time. I mean, um, you know, I think about, you know, all the, all the sort of Jane Austen, novels where you know a woman is is it's scandal right? there's always scandal about something this would have been like huge for 11, Jane Austen time 11 out of 10 right <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. um so imagining for that time it was no less uh gossip inducing so for her to sort of get out of town for a little bit and also to not be alone physically, but also to not be alone in this experience because the right. parallel of Elizabeth is stunning. I mean, it's like you, it's so similar to, yes. you know, to Joseph, Joseph and Zechariah with the like, I don't know about this yeah. uh, situation. Um, and then, and then Elizabeth with John the Baptist. Can I ask a quick question that kind of takes us off course a little bit, which sure. is, so John the Baptist and Jesus, we, I know we, we sort of revisit them at Jesus's baptism. Mm -hmm. Were they, do we know anything about their relationship up until that point? I'm very curious about this, this sort of friendship. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, especially when you think back to this text, because this text indicates that likelihood that they were related in some way, blood related, kinsmen, maybe cousins. Mm -hmm. um, and if that's the case, that you would think that, um, Maybe they've had some awareness of one another. Of course, 80 miles difference means that maybe when Mary goes back home, there's no physical contact between these two men. Mm -hmm. But 
to your question, the way the story evolves is interesting because there is the sense that historians have that there may have been some tension between John the Baptist and Jesus, that John the Baptist had his own following and maybe his own vision of how the world was supposed to be. His vision was, uh, in a sense, a darker vision and one in which the righteous, you know, those who were really holy and pure before God would ascend to a place of significance, whereas everyone else, this is why he refers to the wheat and the chaff in his language. Uh, he says, even now the ax is being laid, you know, placed at the root of the tree. He sees a great kind of leveling happening and he uses a kind of violence about that. Uh, when I think about him, you know, I think about the abolitionist, uh, John Brown, you know, and the sort of uh, effort to overturn society in whatever way necessary. Jesus doesn't come with that kind of a message. And so there, there's a little bit of uh, positioning, I think, that happens when the two of these men actually meet. Um, John says, you know, at one point um, that he thought that, uh, that Jesus would come and baptize him. Jesus insisted, no, I want you to baptize me. There's a wonderful line where John says at one point, uh, I must decrease so that you can increase. And I think that's the recognition that maybe he did have a movement and some followers. And later on in life, of course, John was not afraid to speak out against political rulers, didn't care about the consequences. And because of that, he was imprisoned and eventually beheaded. So he never he was never released from prison. But before he died, he sent word to Jesus. In fact, I think it's one of the most poignant and human passages in all of the all of the gospel stories john has been talking and talking and talking about the coming of the messiah and finally jesus shows up and john by that time is in prison he's baptized jesus but then he goes off in his own way and is locked up and he asks jesus through him through some kind of secret communication or messenger are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? Mm. And, you know, it's as if he's saying, my whole life has been riding on you. I've wanted, I've been waiting for you. We've all been waiting for you. Are you it? Mm. And Jesus tells the messenger, you go back and you tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the blind see, you go back and tell him that. And that's meant to be the good news, that whatever energy Jesus is stirring up in the world, it's a good energy and it's a healing energy. And he wants John to know that because I'm sure he understands as well that John's never going to be released from prison. So that's kind of the arc of their relationship. But it's a good question. It all starts back with this text, with these two babies growing in the, in, you know, growing in the womb. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's some of the background. That's amazing that we have, you know, we have these two parallel women and we have these two parallel partners for them. And then we yes. have these two parallel children. Was John's message um, sort of more in line with the religious approach of that time, the theology, that sort of se severity? Was that normal or was that that in and of itself a little bit revolutionary? Well, there is some thinking that John belonged to a religious sect, 
or group that was very austere, uh, almost a kind of monastic community that believed in the imminent leveling of society through some form of dramatic divine intervention. And that given that relationship, he seems to have, in a sense, pulled him himself out of the kind of daily living in society and just the, the mess of village life that actually became a very big part of Jesus' ministry. So I think that's where the two of them really veer apart from one another. Jesus really enters into the world. You get the sense that John has pulled himself away from it. Mm-hmm. And of course, in order to get to John, Jesus has to go out into the wilderness. And that's where John starts his ministry. You know, when I think about Mary's words, uh, in, in some ways, her, her great message through the Magnificat, I feel that John, in a sense, was faithful to that message. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it, it was almost as if he heard those words somehow and thought, yes, you know, God is going to overturn things. Not that he's going to turn the world upside down. He's going to turn it right side up. John believed that the world was wrong side up Mm -hmm. and that uh, God was going to right size things. And he could have gotten that through Mary's words. I mean, she's very dramatic in her language. And likewise, Jesus picks up on that, but he does so with a, I think there's a different temperament about Jesus. I don't think you could have sat down and had a nice casual conversation with John. I think, I think it would have (laughs) issued in a direct confrontation about whose side are you on? Mm -hmm. Jesus was a storyteller as well as a healer, you know, and he opened up ambiguity, but the priorities that he establishes in his life, I think, are the priorities that come out of this song from Mary. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering if there was an element. So I'm picturing, you know, Elizabeth and Mary, and then eventually Mary will leave and go back mm-hmm. home. And I mean, what a memory. And we know all of our memories are not necessarily perfect. So I'm picturing Elizabeth telling her baby John about it. Mm. And maybe four or five years later when he's understanding, maybe the story isn't quite the same. Maybe John is his childness does not fully grasp what Elizabeth is saying. Sure. So part of me wonders if so much was shaped by the humanity of error, <laughs> it's yeah. a horrible thing to say, but I just, I'm picturing, you know, the same message delivered to two people and how often do we see it, you know, where one person takes it one way and one person takes it a completely different way. Yes. And the kernel of the message is kind of the same. Um, yeah. but these two very different personalities go about ministry in two completely different ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's ignoring I, the divinity of Jesus, but you know, <laughs> that right. little part of it. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I love that. Again, this is the kind of thing that Jewish interpreters would just love this kind of, you know, imaginative inquiry of the text, you know, just dive into it and just imagine, imagine, imagine. And, you know, I think what you're saying is that, so maybe John picks up some pieces of this, right? Uh, At this time of year, when, when pastors are reading commentaries about these texts, and you can usually get hold of them in all kinds of periodicals and so on, I've often heard the suggestion that this Magnificat becomes the lullaby that Jesus hears when he's growing up. So when he's four and five, mm-hmm. he's getting this, this sung to him as a song. Yeah. 
that. And uh, I love that as well, though. It's, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing of to sing to a baby, you know, <laughs> to a child. You know, he's brought down the powerful from their thrones. I mean, you know, it's it's about a great world reversal. But she, it, the thing that strikes me about this story, you know, it kind of begins with a with a baby kick, you know, because Elizabeth, Elizabeth gets this little kick. Mm-hmm. And she interprets that as the sign of the Holy Spirit moving. Mm. And it's a great signal in this story that there's something going on here that can't be manufactured or manipulated by human intervention. This is this is a essential intangible going on here that she refers to as the, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. which of course is the thing that's activated this whole journey in Mary's life as well. Mm-hmm. So then it infuses their lives. And then of course, infuses the lives of their sons. And that's, what's such a beautiful thing to think about these two men who then grow up and become so significant in their different ways. Absolutely. We have a question. Uh, it says Luke one chapter 24 to 25 says Elizabeth was subject to reproach, possibly like Mary. Would you comment and explain this? Yeah. Um, so I think the interesting thing about Elizabeth is that she's a person who uh, she was unable to have children. So or that was that was the view that she and Zechariah had about their lives. And so she she comes at this from the perspective of a person who is um, feeling that she's never going to be able to have a child. And um when she does finally get this sense, it's not clear about how the community, you know, recognizes her. So in those verses, um, after those days, this is now referring to Elizabeth, uh, his wife, Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. Hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a mysterious, it's suggestive that there's some reason that she has to withdraw. Uh, she said, this is what the Lord has done for me. When he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. And that disgrace is referred to as, and it's a and it's a thread that runs through many biblical stories, which is this theme of barrenness. And this is the word that's used over and over again. Someone who's barren. So not having the capacity to create children becomes a, a sign of shame. I mean, we we look at this now and think, how horrifying would it have been for someone uh, in this particular culture not to have children and to have that cloud hanging over you for your entire life? Mm-hmm. So Elizabeth becomes a reminder of all those he- women in the Hebrew Bible who also supposedly could not have had children, Sarah being foremost among them. And she... And Sarah feels the weight of that burden on her. And um, and yet, in the end, she will give birth to a child. And so much will change about, obviously, about her life. Uh, so I think that, that that ancient attitude is still clearly very present in the lives of people living at the time of Jesus in that culture. And so... Here, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth received the gift of have, have the presence of a child in their life, which they thought they were never going to have. And again, there's the suggestion that it couldn't have happened without the addition of some help. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's curious. <clears throat> um, so the disgrace she feels is this disgrace of it's in her case, unlike Mary, uh, where, you know, Mary has this, she says, I'm pregnant and it's the Holy Spirit. And Joseph says, uh-huh. Right. Um, in, in Zechariah's case, the, the, the stigma is just about not being able to have children. So in, interestingly enough, each of them has to deal with some kind of social uh, stigma or judgment in order to, at the same time, they're celebrating this new life inside them. I think that's really interesting. It's a good question. Yeah, it is. How, do we know how roughly the how long it was before she returned and Joseph um, took her back in, I guess? So it's it's the Gospel of Matthew that tells that story, and so the time frame. I'm not sure that the time frame is clear because I get the sense that he has to change his mind almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has this. He has his life all mapped out. You know, he's a righteous guy. He follows all the codes. He dots all the you know I's and crosses the T's, and then this wow thing happens in his life, which he did not expect. And that throws him completely off balance. But an angel comes to him. He's concocting a plan about how to distance himself from Mary. Mm-hmm. And the angel says, uh-uh-uh. <laughs> That's not how this story is going to wind up. Mm-hmm. And so you are to take Mary, your wife. And uh, so as your wife. So it's almost you get the sense it's immediate. And you also, we also get the sense from what we know of the culture at the time that it would have had to have been immediate. Um, Mary could have been subject to some pretty severe penalties for having a child out of wedlock. And that's um, that's something that's in the background of this story. I'm not sure we're exactly clear how far people would have pushed that. Would she have been killed as a result of that? We, we don't know. But um, but anyway, she's definitely on the outs. So Joseph has to act quickly. And then, of course, when the child is born, he gets another intervention in a dream and has to take the family out of out of the country entirely in order to protect them. Yeah. Good question. So thank you. Another uh, comment from our wonderful audience members. It says, it seems like Advent is the continuation of the voices of the prophets from the Hebrew Bible. The main characters involved clearly knew and echoed those voices. So a a, a awareness of the Hebrew text Mm. in, in the actions of our, of our new new Testament players. Yeah. You know, one of the great features of the Bible is uh, it loves to speak to itself. (laughs) And so you get these passages uh, from the Hebrew Bible that surface, it's as if they come up out of the depths and they they sort of raise their hand and say, here I am. And there's a lot of that in Luke. So these passages that come, and again, <clears throat> a good example would be Zechariah and the story of her, her barrenness. You know, it's not a new story. It's a very long, continuous thread. And likewise, when Mary tells her you know, her in her great song where she says, he has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. This is great prophetic material, right? It's been spoken over and over and over again. I would say the difference here is that now it's embodied in a marginalized, let's say, teenage woman. Mm-hmm. 
mm. uh, who has really no structural support around her at all. I mean, really, she has to take the initiative to go all the way off to be in the hill country with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, but she is she's a living embodiment of all those great prophetic passages. The one that we read from Isaiah chapter 61 as part of this Bible study course, those are the words that Jesus spoke from, I might, might well say, his first sermon ever in his little hometown synagogue in Nazareth. But he pulls those passages forward from the book of the prophet Isaiah. He quotes them almost word for word. There are some, some significant things he leaves out. But you get the sense that Mary also has these texts kind of swirling around her, and she can pull them and make them part of her own. And I think one of the things that, that maybe we don't emphasize enough in terms of our faith formation programs and you know the spiritual practices that we talk about is that that's one of the gifts of being a person of faith you you have these passages that we draw we can draw them you know we can download them <laughs> directly into our lives and uh, we have to do that very thoughtfully though because there's you know there's sometimes we're taking something out of context um, but in the case of, of Mary, I think the comment is spot on. You get the sense that she shows up, opens the door and zoom, all this prophetic material comes out of her mouth. And it's like, oops, um, that was that me. Uh, so, um, so I think that's really, I think that's a, a good observation. There's one thing I would add to it. Um, that this Magnificat starts off by saying my soul magnifies the Lord, right? So she wants to amplify God. Mm -hmm. And the word magnificat is the Latin word used for that word. It's the first word in the Latin translation of this text. When you go on and read the rest of it, though, he certainly, she certainly talks a lot about God, but it sort of becomes a lot about Mary. Mm -hmm. And I'm so struck every time I read this, I think it's so amazing. She says, surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Yeah, she doesn't really have a self-esteem problem here. <laughs> you know, she she thinks she has found herself mm. in the larger picture. And I think that's a great moment in life. I actually I think these moments are elusive. You know, I personally I find it hard to keep the thread. You know? So every once in a while I think, yeah, I see how this fits in. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing fits into the big picture. You know, my work as a pastor in this congregation, in this town, and so on. You may have the same feeling, and our other colleagues on staff may feel this as well. But a lot of the time, it's kind of like where it's just sort of, I'm sort of feeling my way in the dark, right? Yeah, yeah. And I remember a few months ago, I was walking by the church at night with one of our dogs, and it was one of these nice clear nights, could look up at the stars. And instead of looking up at the stars and thinking, wow, you know, I'm not even a speck here. I had the opposite feeling. And I thought, you know, somehow my role here, my life here fits in to mm. this picture. And I was thinking about that in terms of our congregation, you know, that and the work we're doing here, it fits in. There is this, there is this sense that all of it somehow hangs together and every little piece is important. Mm. Every tiny smidgen of something. And I think that's how Mary, to me, that's the message I take away from this text 
It's this belief that every single person is powerful and significant in the views, in the view of this creator who sees the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's one of the takeaways that I keep with me from this story. She found her calling. She found her calling. Yeah. Great, great connection. Throwback. Really, <laughs> yeah. Good but work. She, yeah, but yeah, like you said, it's her purpose in, 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 she found her, her purpose in the story. You know, she figured out what her character was in the, in the, in the whole scene. Um, I was thinking about, you're talking about, we were talking about, you know, calling back to the Hebrew Bible. Is the Hebrew Bible identical to what we call the Old Testament? Yes. The simpleton question. Okay. Yeah. And, and the reference to Hebrew Bible uh, has become more common as the years have gone on because the, the, the phrase, the Old Testament has become for some people, you know, this, it's a pejorative comment. It's like that was then it's outmoded. It's outdated. Here's the new Testament. And I think to the point of the, of the comment, um, now we see how much of the Hebrew Bible has infused itself into the, what we call the new covenant scriptures. Um, so I think that that's a really good, um, it's another way of seeing, seeing the connection. Uh, there's one other thing I wanted to mention about this story that always strikes me every single time I read it. And that is that in our world, we like to draw, we sometimes there's a tendency to draw a pretty pretty firm line between the spiritual and the political. Mm -hmm. And over the years as a pastor, I've had members of my congregation say, well, you know, we don't want you to make any political statements, right? Mm -hmm. This is a spiritual community. We want to be thinking about spiritual things. Mary would have had absolutely no understanding of that distinction because in her mind, the, the purposes of God, as she spoke about them in this song that we've come to know as the Magnificat, are deeply political mm. and they're deeply economic. It's really about a leveling off process where the inequity that has been part of her world will cease to exist. And finally, everyone will have a fair share of life. And so many um, Christian people who've become involved in movements of justice and equi equity and peacemaking have gone back to Mary's story. I would say even more so than the words of Jesus for inspiration to carry them forward. So I think that, you know, we want to be really, I, I think it's good to sit at the, at the feet of these words, right? As if Mary's our teacher here mm -hmm. and to listen in because she thinks that God is revealed in the world through the political and economic structures. And that if, if we're not paying attention to that and trying to do whatever's in our power to do to create a more just and equitable world, then we've lost the great prophetic vision. And of course, uh, that's what she's drawing into her life. She's not picking, in a way, she, you could say she's not thinking an original thought either because she's pulling from the past. But what's beautiful about what she's done is she's composed it all in a very unique way. And she sees her significance in that. That's what, and that then becomes her original contribution, her gift. That all starts with Mary. 
um, way before Jesus is even shows up in diapers. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm so interested in her and there's, she's just, I mean, so many women in the Bible are just such fascinating oh, people yeah. to study. I, I, I served a congregation once that was, um, Mary averse, shall we say they oh. were not, they, I think they associated <laughs> studying Mary to uh, more uh, Roman traditions. Mm. And so what the funny thing was, it was a very uh, female led congregation, but you don't, you don't talk about Mary. And so I, I'm a bit of a newbie looking at her and I just find her to be so fascinating. So this time has been, has been such an incredible study. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, since this is our last uh, of our four-part Bible study, are there any sort of closing thoughts for when we look at the whole thing you wanted to give us today? Yeah, thank you for that question, Leslie. And thank you for for creating this podcast over these weeks so that we've been able to do this. It's been a really, it's a great, been a great joy to do it. So much fun. Um, I, I want to go back. I, I think I want to summarize all of this by saying, maybe offering two questions for us to think about in our own spiritual uh, alignment, let's say. One of them is, what are we waiting for? And that's the great question of Advent. What are we waiting for in our lives? And what a gift it would be, I think, in these next four weeks to take some time, a few minutes, you know, grab a cup of coffee, cup of tea, just sit, Keep the, keep the laptop off at a distance for a moment and ask, ask ourselves, what are we waiting for in our world that is um, more uh, about more health, more justice, more peace, more connection? I mean, since that's Mary and Elizabeth, we're all about connection, I think. And uh, so that's, that's part of it. And then the other question I have is, comes from Mary herself. What do we want to amplify in our lives? And I'll give a practical example of this. I was just looking at one of the news feeds that I check in on each day. And yesterday, one of the, one of the lead lines was, you know, what, what to do when Thanksgiving is going to be a sad time or something like that. And I've seen a lot of, of language like that in the past few weeks. And I thought to myself, why are we assuming it's going to be a sad time? You know, it's going to be different. I think everybody recognizes that. And, and without question, there will be elements of Thanksgiving that will be in their difference, will not be as happy, you know, will not make that occasion as happy as it normally is. I completely appreciate that. But there are some very good reasons why we're practicing the kinds of protocols we are right now for the health and well-being of everyone. And that's that's a sacrifice, it seems to me, that's worth making. So again, I guess my question is, what do we want to amplify? Maybe there are some things that we will discover about these holy days and holidays this year that we hadn't discovered before. And we can share those with one another. There might be something that we'll learn about ourselves as we go through this. Um, that will be a good thing that we'll want to carry forward with us. Mary wanted to amplify God, which means that she wanted to amplify God's activity in life. And I think that God is alive and at large through this time, as hard and painful and difficult as it may be, 
but let's keep our focus on amplification, you know, magnification. Thank you, Mary, for giving us the language. Let's amplify the goodness as much as we can. Let's magnify the connection. Let's, uh, through our acts of gratitude, give thanks for all those things in our lives that are, that are giving us hope. That would be my second question. So what are we longing for and waiting for? And how can we amplify what God is doing to help ourselves move forward with hope? Amen. Thank you, Ed. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you to all those who joined us live and those who are joining us after the fact. We're so grateful for you joining with us in this space. Um, and we look forward to seeing you again uh, another time. Sounds wonderful. Thank you, Leslie. And blessings to all for Thanksgiving and beyond. Thanks for listening. Round Hill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Round Hill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillcommunitychurch.org.